0: well good morning It's good to be here and I'm glad you're here and whether you're joining us live or online we're we're glad you're tuning in and whether it's live or after the fact, we're so glad that you've chosen to be with us uh, so I want to ask you a question as we get started um, you you've heard the commercial what's in your wallet and some of you know what credit card company is I don't really care that's irrelevant uh, but I want to ask you another question. Who's in your corner? Who's in your corner? Do you remember uh, the, the movie Rocky? You know, old movie, right? And do you, some of you remember who was in his corner? Mick, Mick, Rock, Rock, you know? Or Adrian, you know? So he had a couple people in his, I know it's horrible. Why does, some of you are going, why does he even try? Because someday I may get it. <laughs> But no, right? So he had, he could always look, and Mick was in his corner, right? And this is what we all need to know. Do I have somebody in my corner? Is there somebody that when life is going well or not so well, they're there. They care. They got my back. You know, we need to know that. So we're going to talk about that. So the passage we're going to be in, it's going to be, a challenge because there's a lot of verses and not a lot of time to go through it all, right? So I just want to say to you, whether this is your first weekend here or even online joining us, I, my assumption is this, that in, in this audience, whatever the audience is, whether it's live or, or whether it's after the fact or in-house or online, that here's the group of people that we have. We have people that know the Bible really well. They've read it over and over. They've been years and years in the Bible. They have knowledge. And many of you think that the people around you are those people. They're not, okay? (laughs) They're not. But there's other people, okay, I know the Bible pretty well. You know, I can get my way, I find my way around it and all that stuff. And then there's other people, and this may be the majority, I don't really know who Stephen is in the Bible. I, I don't know the Bible at all. I feel like a complete idiot when it comes to the Bible. I don't really know that. So if you're that person, you're in good company because there's a number of people, there's a lot of people like that who don't really know what the Bible teaches. So what we're going to do today is we're going to, here's, here's my promise to you. Maybe I shouldn't make a promise, but I'll make it anyways. And if I don't keep it, you can come and yell at me after this message. All right. So here's my promise to you. Whatever you know about the Bible, or whatever you, how all along you've been through it, I'm going to do a couple of things. Number one, I'm going to try to show you the context of what's happening in the book of Acts so that you'll say, Acts, what is that? It's a book of the Bible, it's the New Testament, it's written by Luke. So you already know that, right? And we're going to walk through kind of what is going on in the book of Acts. Then we're going to talk about this guy, Stephen. That Marty, began, Marty preached last week, and we're going to talk a little bit about Stephen and what, what he did. And then we're going to talk about how he his sermon, because he's going to preach a sermon, and it's going to talk about the Old Testament. And then we're going to talk about what difference does that make to you? Okay, that's what we're going to try to do. So let me tell you about what's happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is Luke, Volume 2. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote Acts. And Acts is the beginning of the church. And so, a a number of weeks ago, we were in Acts, Chapter 2, and Peter preached this sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he essentially said, you murdered the Messiah, the promised one, the one sent from God. You murdered him. And the people responded, and they said, well, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And it was interesting, because that day, It says 3,000 people were baptized, were added to the church. 3,000 in one day, right? It's a lot. But before that, Jesus, so, so, so I have all these people who have gathered for Pentecost, this Feast of Pentecost, and now we have these new people who are following Jesus, and they're all gathered in Jerusalem. And here's what I think's going on. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go to Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the world. Now Judea is just the county, if you want to call it that, the region where Jerusalem was. So he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost parts of the world. So they're all in Jerusalem. That's where the church began. And now Jesus has ascended to heaven, and they're expecting he's going to be back, like, Friday. You know, He'll, he should be back in a few days. Well, he didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back. So now we've got a problem because now we've got people who are there who have come from a long ways away from other countries and other places, and they've gathered, and the, the church now has to take care of them. And that's why we have this problem with the food distribution. Some of the people, the widows, aren't getting their share. And that's what Marty talked about last week. So we have this new office called a deacon. And these deacons were supposed to make sure that everyone got food and were taken care of, right? And so there were two things that are going to happen here. So, and then the other thing we have going on, we talked about this, Peter and John are going around and they're healing people, they're preaching the gospel, they're doing all this good stuff and the religious leaders don't like it. So they call them in and they say, knock it off, stop doing that. And Peter and John go, well, you know, if, are we going to listen to you or are we going to listen to God? Because God's telling us not to knock it off, you're telling us to knock it off, we're going to keep doing it. We're just not going to listen to you. And so they beat him up. They throw him in prison. And so now we've got some problems. We've got internal problems. We've got this food that we've got to distribute right. We've got, we've got external problems because we've got people who are trying to share the good news. And they're getting beat up. They're getting thrown into jail. And, and you know, bad things are happening. And now we come to Stephen. Now, Stephen brings these two themes together because, number one, he's one of the ones chosen to distribute the food, but he's also the one who's going to go out and start teaching the good news, and he's not going to get beat up. He's going to get stoned to death. So this leads to a whole bunch of persecution because at the stoning of Stephen is this guy named Saul. Now, Saul becomes Paul. His name changes because he becomes a He goes from being a persecutor of Christians in the church to one who plants churches. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. It's all about the Apostle Paul planting churches. So Stephen is a key character because he brings these themes of persecution. And so when persecution comes to the Christians at Jerusalem, they basically have to flee because it's not safe to be a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem. So they have to flee, and they go back to their home countries. That's why Paul, when he goes out later on and plants churches, he finds Christians are already there. All right, so that's kind of an overview of the book of Acts. So we want to jump into um, the portion that speaks of Stephen. Now, Stephen didn't just serve tables. He also healed people, and he also preached. So look at Acts chapter 6, verse 8. This will bring us up to the context. Now Stephen, full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene in Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who, brought, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the spirit God gave him as he spoke then they secretly persecuted, or excuse me, persuaded some men to say, "We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God." So we have. Uh, so in in Jerusalem, you have the Roman government that's over. The, they're the they're the big, big the big boys, right? And then you have the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was just a Jewish ruling council. The Sanhedrin was composed of the high priests, the elders, and the scholars. And they were basically given the task by Rome to keep the peace. If things got out of hand and the Sanhedrin couldn't handle it, then Rome stepped in. When Rome stepped in, it was not a good thing. So they hear Stephen out there, and he's preaching, he's healing, he's causing a ruckus, a religious ruckus. And they bring him in, kind of like Peter and John, and they go, you know, you need to knock it off. And they find guys to bring false charges against Stephen, and basically what they're gonna say to Stephen is, you need to defend yourself. You need to acknowledge, you need to make a case for why we should let you do what you're doing. And so Stephen is gonna come off with a sermon. It's a long one. I mean, it's a, whole, he just goes and goes and goes. You I mean, he was, he went off, right? And so, I want to go through, and this is where I'm going to kind of skip, but I'm going to give you a whole bunch of Old Testament history, because that's kind of what Stephen does in his message. I mean, it's like 50 verses. So, let me just tell you kind of what his sermon was. So, they, so here's the context. They're basically saying, Stephen, and all these false charges have been brought against him So defend yourself, defend your actions. They don't want to talk that he's healed people. They don't want to talk that he's doing good things. They just want him to defend himself. And here's what happens. So Stephen gets up there and he says, God made promises to Abraham. Now, Abraham was this guy in the Old Testament, and God met him, and we read kind of the promises in Genesis chapter 12. What were the promises? I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you, Um, and uh, I'm going to give you land. The promised land, and there's going to be somebody from your seed, somebody of your descendants, is going to be a blessing to all mankind, all people. Okay? Those are the four promises that were given to Abraham. So, Abraham is this, this guy, and he basically is told, Leave your hometown and go to a place that, I'm, that God is going to show you. So, you know, he does that. He follows God, and he just does what God calls him to do. By the way, in his lifetime, he never saw one of those four promises come true. He never saw them. He didn't see the descendants. He didn't see the land. He didn't see none of that, but he trusted God anyway. Now, Abraham had a son. Abraham, Isaac was his son, and then Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, okay? We we think of those four names. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's 12 sons were the tribe of Israel, okay? The 12 tribes of Israel came from Jacob. that was long after Abraham. So then Joseph starts talking about one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Now we know Joseph, right? You've heard of Joseph, the many coat, right? He had the brothers that sold him into slavery. They saw a caravan coming. They didn't like the little Joseph brother. And they said, let's sell him. And they sold him. And dad always liked you better. And he really did. And so he's down in Egypt. Then there's this, this famine in the land. And Joseph is like not knowing what's going on and through all, you know, sovereign circumstances of God, God, Joseph is brought to a place of power in Egypt, and now there's a famine, and the family, Jacob's sons come looking for food, and they finally find food, and they come, and they realize it's Joseph, the brother they sold for slavery, and it was like, Whoa, this is quite the moment. And Jacob comes, his father comes, and he's rejoicing, and and everybody's happy, right? And so there's about 70 at the end of Genesis. There's about 70. So that's part of what Joseph is talking about. You say, well, what's the point? Joseph, get to the point. Well, then he says, "So, so now we've gone through the book of Genesis. You've pretty much heard roughly the history of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 on. So now we come to Exodus, but what you don't realize when you read your Bible is between Genesis, the end of Genesis, chapter 50, and Exodus 1, there's 400 years. And you know what happens in those 400 years? The people of Israel grow like gangbusters. There's a lot of them. And so God basically hears their cry and he says, I need to find somebody to lead my people out of the, so that's one of the promises of Abraham, right? I'm going to make you a great nation. There it is, great nation. But the problem is they're slaves. So he raises up he raises up Moses. Moses comes to a burning bush one day. He's out there as a shepherd, and God says, "Take off your sandals, man. This is holy ground." And so he does, and he says, "I want you to go down to Egypt, and I want you to tell the pharaoh, let my people go.'" Moses goes me? <laughs> I'm not very good at speaking. Don't sit. You know, he goes through all of that back and forth, so God finally sends Moses and Aaron together down with him to Egypt, and you have all the plagues and all that. So finally, the nation of Israel, probably millions of people leave with Moses leading them into the wilderness. Now, where are they going? Well, they're going to promise number two, which God said, I'm going to give you land. Now, this is kind of all in Joseph's sermon. I'm summarizing. You, 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 some of you are thinking, man, it would have been quicker if you just read the 60 verses. <laughs> All right, but you're getting kind of an overview of the Old Testament history because it's really important that you hear this part. So he leads the people out of Egypt with the idea they're going to go into the promised land. Well, that was what God promised Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And so Moses is leading them. And if you're a parent and you've ever gone on a vacation, This is what you hear. Are we there yet? I have to go to the bathroom. When are we going to eat? I'm hungry. I'm bored. You know, over and over. And Moses heard this as he was leading the people. For 40 years he heard them. Now you know what Moses felt like, right? (laughs) Right? And, And so the people, they just kept complaining and complaining. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, and God says to him, there's trouble down below. They're building a calf, a golden calf, right? And so Moses comes down, and he basically sees the people dancing around this golden calf, and this is where Moses says about the people, and this is where where Stephen's going to bring the message to application. He says, You are a stiff-necked people. You won't listen to God to save your life. You just won't listen to God. That's his point. So you see what he's doing here. Now, this is what every pastor should do. A lot of pastors want to do, like, tell you what the Bible says and describe kind of what I've been doing a little bit and give you information and knowledge and stuff. But there has to be a point where every pastor brings you to an application. And that's kind of what Stephen's doing now. So Stephen in his message basically says, you know what, you are just like your parents in the wilderness with the golden calf. You are a stiff-necked people. You complain about everything. And then he he talks about how David and Solomon uh, and that they built the temple and the prophets pointed to the Messiah. And you didn't listen to the prophets. You didn't didn't do any of that. And he basically, and and this is where we want to jump in. This is the main passage we want to look at. So jump down to verse 51 of chapter 7. So that's all background. That's kind of what he's been talking about. But now he's going to apply it right between their eyes, and they're not going to like it. Verse 51 of chapter 7. And he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, meaning they're hard. You can't get through to them. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was, Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but not have obeyed it. Do you see what he's saying? The law was given by God to you through angels and you won't even receive it because you're so stiff-necked. You killed all the prophets and you killed the one the prophets said was coming. Well, that's not an encouraging message. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They didn't like what they heard, did they? At all. While they were stoning him. Well, let me, let, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the f- feet of the young man named Saul. You might want to circle that. You might want to underline it. Because the rest of the book of Acts is really going to focus on Saul. Saul becomes Paul. And we're going to see a, re- a radical trans- spiritual transformation in his life. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That doesn't mean he fell asleep. He died. Okay, that's a euphemism for he died. And, and I love the way they use this euphemism for falling asleep because it means he fell asleep, but he woke up in heaven. That's the point. But he died. Okay, physically died. And Saul approved of their killing him. Now that phrase by Luke is really important because, now remember, Luke is writing this after the fact. He's reporting all that's happened. He's going to talk about the missionary journeys, which, by the way, Luke was with Saul, Paul, on some of these missionary journeys. So he puts this reference in there, and it's for us to take note of saying, oh, okay, so this is really kind of a spiritual beginning for Paul. He's anti-Christian. He's anti-church. Now, I want to talk about a phrase that Stephen uses. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I want to talk about the right hand of God. You don't have to turn to these verses, but I want to read a few of them. These are interesting verses. Colossians 3.1 says this, since you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son, that's speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. Hebrews ten, twelve. But when the priest, this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. All right, look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what does the right hand of the throne of God represent? Well, it represents the power and the place of honor. And what it's saying is that Jesus' place is in the the right hand, in the place of power and the place of honor. And every verse that we read, and there's many more I could read, it says he was seated at the right hand of God, or some phrase along those lines. Now, in Stephen's stoning, something else happens. And maybe you noticed it. What does he say? I see heaven open and the Son of Man, not sitting, he's standing. It's the only time in Scripture we see that Jesus is described by the right hand of God, standing. The question is, why? Why was Jesus standing? Let me ask you a question. When you go to a game and it's coming down to the last shot and you everybody stands to see, he shot it, oh, the stand and see. Or the coming the runners coming around, the Olympics starts next week, right? He's running around and, and it's, a, it's like there are like three or four of them and we all stand to see who won, right? Or it's the last play of the football game and the guy's running down the field and we all stand. Did he make it? We stand to cheer, we stand to... See, we, we were watching, right? We stand, right? The audience just, whoa, what happened here, right? Or let me give you another picture. You have a, ch- a little child, uh, your son, your daughter, your grandda- son, granddaughter, and you're just sitting there reading a book. All of a sudden, you, you see them, and they fall down, and immediately, you know, they're hurting. You What do you do? You immediately stand and run to them, right? Or you're, you're, you're sitting at home, and maybe on the front porch, and a friend pulls in, in uh, and they, they, they come, and you, you get up and you greet them. You stand to greet them, right? That's what we do, right? See, I think Jesus stood to affirm, applaud, and welcome Stephen into heaven, into his presence. I think Jesus was sitting, and then he stood to receive his servant. I think it's a really powerful thing. It, it, what I'm saying is, I think when Stephen came to the, the, the hardest part of his battle, the hardest part of his fight, when he looked to the corner, he saw Jesus, and Jesus wasn't sitting down, unattentive. He was standing up. He was watching. He was waiting. So I have two lessons. So this is where. So this is this is what has happened so far. Now I want to say, okay. So what are two lessons we can take from this passage for your, your life and my life. The first lesson is a hard lesson. The second lesson is an encouraging one. Here's the hard lesson. You are responsible for how you respond to God's truth. Stephen criticized his audience that day and he said, you are a stiff necked people. Your hearts, your, mind, your ears, your minds, your eyes, you're all circumcised. In other words, you can't get through it. You're, you're hard hearted. Now, we know people that are hard-hearted. We have friends and neighbors and family members that are hard-hearted. We're not hard-hearted, but they're hard-hearted. They they are stiff-necked. Not me, but them. We we are very good at picking up other people who are stiff-necked, but we're not stiff-necked. Isn't that the way it works? We can see it in others, but we don't always see it in ourselves. Here's what we mean by stiff-necked. We often mistake God's patience and his kindness with permissiveness, as if we'll never have a really an accounting for our sin. In other words, we make a mockery of his, of his mercy and his grace. We presume upon it. God's mercy is so dependable that we tend to take it for granted. This leads us to think that we can live any way we want and ask for forgiveness later. Now this isn't a new thought. Paul basically addressed that in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sitting that grace may abound? Paul's argument is this. He's saying, some of you out there are thinking Well, if we're going to be forgiven for every sin, then we can go out and sin any way we want because there's always grace and there's always mercy. We can always get away with it because he'll always forgive us. What's Paul's answer to that? May it never be. In other words, his point is if you think that's the way God's mercy and grace works, you do not understand God's mercy and God's grace. Too often we presume upon God. We uh, viciously condemn the sins in others while uh, reassuring ourselves that our sins aren't that bad. Talk to your family members the next time you're ready to condemn or you condemn others. Ask them, How am I dri-? you know those signs? How am I driving? You know, sometimes you get in your car you're criticizing everyone around you. Ask your wife or your husband or your kids, how am I driving, kids? Like a crazy person! (laughs) Here's the point. I think too many Christians live with the belief, I'll do what I want for now because... I can always come back to God someday. I can always ask for forgiveness. So we preemptively sin, thinking that God's grace will be there to cover us. Paul writes this. It's very interesting. This is in Romans chapter 2. So when you, a mere human human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? In other words, we're really, really harsh on other people's behavior. And many times, it's people who aren't even Christians. We want to hold them to some Christian standard for some odd reason. But the Bible calls them pagans. They're not supposed to live like Christians because they're not. But even then, we have these harsh standards for other people, but our standards on ourselves are so lenient. So overlooking. And he says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What Paul's saying there is, God gives you his mercy, he gives you his grace, so that you'll come to a place and say, oh, what have I done? How could I do this? How could I ever have gone there? How could I ever allowed myself to, to, to be part of this? And you repent, and you turn and you say, God, I'm so sorry, and I just repent of my sin, and I don't ever want to do it again. John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Most of you probably have never read it. You probably heard about John Bunyan. He lived a long time ago, but he wrote some powerful words. And I want to read you. He, this is how he referred to sin. He said, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of of his love. It, we think lo, sin is just a little thing that we do. It's terrible when others do it, but a little thing when we do it, and we think God has to forgive me. It's written in the Bible. And we go on and sin, thinking we'll just ask for forgiveness later. Let me ask you a question Have you ever sinned with a purpose, on purpose, thinking I can always ask for forgiveness? later. If you have, you presumed on his grace and his mercy. In the end, you can't blame Jesus or others for your sin and rebellion. You have your chance to repent, believe, and obey. So Stephen was saying to the people that day, you are stiff-necked, You're not willing to repent. You have rejected God's word at every corner. You have killed the prophets. You have not listened to the angels who have brought God's word. You don't care about God. And that's how you missed the Messiah and murdered him. And you're still the same. You're just like your ancestors. Maybe that's what you needed to hear today. Maybe that's why you're listening or watching online is because you are stiff-necked. You are are very condescending on others, but you're very forgiving of yourself. You trample God's grace and mercy daily. You sin, it, and because you have this idea that I can always ask for forgiveness, I can always get away. I think we need to take our sin a little more seriously. Here's the second comforting lesson. Some of you need to hear this. You need to remember, Jesus is always in your corner. Now, the death of Stephen was awful. The greeting greeting of Stephen was awesome. Can you imagine that? You know, just as Jesus was in Stephen's corner, he's in your corner. He promises to be in your corner. Um, Let me ask you a question. Do you see Jesus standing in your corner? Do you know for a fact that he's in your corner? Some people, and I've heard people say this to me, Pastor, I wish I could believe that, but I have done things that are so horrible and so terrible, I just don't believe that Jesus could ever forgive me. I don't believe Jesus could ever be in my corner. You know, that sounds so holy and so righteous and so humble. The only problem is it's a lie from the pit of hell. Dad, do you have to be so dramatic? No, it, it really is. Uh, l- l- let, me just, let, me, let me just ask you a question. When Jesus says, what was the last thing that he said? Do you remember the last thing he said when he was hanging on the cross for your sins and mine? It is finished. What, what he was saying was, my sacrifice was enough to pay for all the sins of all the world from all time to all, from everlasting to everlasting, my, my sacrifice right now is enough for everything. It covers everything. You as a human being are saying, Jesus, sorry to correct you, but my sin is too big for you. It's too awful for you. You're wrong, Jesus. You really want to say that to Jesus. You see, this isn't a humble statement. This is a very arrogant statement. It's a, it's a very proud statement. Now, the promises Jesus gives it to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, this is the verse we like, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And you, you some of you have that verse, and you, you have it written down, and, and, and you you've maybe have it memorized. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you say, there it is, Jesus is in my corner, but I want to put a caveat on that. You cannot tear that verse away from chapter... 18, 28, 18, and 19. It says, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus over and over in his life said, come, follow me. And there were some, you know, like the, some of the apostles, Peter and the others, John, they jumped out of their boats and they followed him. And then there were others that Jesus come follow me. And rich young ruler says, yeah, I don't think so. Other people says, yeah, you know, my schedule's not working for you. Yeah, How about next Friday? Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, this is a promise for those of you that say, I'm one of his. I belong to him. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, when you follow me, you know, you need to know that I'm always going to be in your corner. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am always with you to the end of the age. But you have to be on task with me. Because if you're going your own way, you're going your own way alone. You can't walk with Jesus and do your own thing. You are either with Jesus or you're not. And Jesus said that. You're either with us or against us, right? But Jesus promises you that if you are following Him, it's not perfect, right? We're not talking about perfect obedience, but what we're saying is overall direction of your life—is your desire to follow Him? Is it your desire to walk with Him? Is it your desire to repent? Is it your desire to to obey His commands? Jesus, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I've called you to do. The Bible says that Jesus gives us a new heart and a new desire to follow. And Jesus says, when when you repent and you turn to me and you follow me, know this, that I will never let you go. Jesus said this in John's gospel. He said, uh, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. These are the promises of Jesus. He says that if if, if you follow me, you will always have me in your corner. Always. There will never be a day that you'll wake up and say, I wonder if Jesus is on my side. I wonder if he's in my corner. I wonder if he's got my back. He always does. He always will. Jesus wants it to be very clear Psalm 23 says though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for thou art with me your rod and your staff they comfort me So those dark times when you feel like you're all you're not all alone look to the corner he's there he's standing there He's with you Now there's an, and I want to close with this there's some really interesting parallels between Stephen and Jesus Stephen died alone like Jesus. You say, well, his mother was there. Yeah, she was, but kind of he died alone. His, all of his friends and people that should have been in his corner left, right? He died a brutal death, just like Jesus. I mean, you think about it. Uh, if you had a choice between being crucified or stoned to death, which would you choose? You go, well, that's not a choice. He forgave those who killed him. Stephen says, Father, forgive them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But Stephen looked to heaven, and he saw Jesus standing in his corner. When Jesus looked to heaven, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was all alone. Even his Father in heaven looked away. Why? Because he had taken on our sin. He did that. He, he, he died alone so that we could live with others. He died, he gave his life so that we could live. He took our sins so that we could be forgiven. This is what Jesus did for you and for me. He gave his life so that we could live. He was forsaken so that we could be welcome and embraced. So one of the things I, I, I like to say and this will be up on the screen, is that God never promises that we will leave this life peacefully, but he always offers us a safe landing in his loving arms. And some of you have family members and friends that have died and it's been a difficult death. But I want to tell you, if they're, if they're followers of Jesus Christ, they had a safe landing. Stephen went from a horrible death Who is safe landing and that's a promise for every follower of Jesus Christ so what is it that God is saying to you today are you taking your sin are you taking his mercy and grace for granted are you presuming on it are you are you are you preemptively sinning thinking that well he has to forgive me is that your attitude it's messed up it's absolutely messed up and it needs to change Maybe you're, you're, you're struggling because you go, I just don't have really anybody in my corner. I just want to tell you if you're following. And by the way, some of you are following Jesus, and it doesn't cost you anything. Some of you are following Jesus. It is costing you a lot right now. The people that you used to depend upon, they think you're nuts. They, they're struggling with you right now, and you're struggling with them. And you're wondering, is there anybody in my corner? I just want to tell you today, Jesus is in your corner. And he knows what you're going through. He knows rejection. He knows friends that have just given him over. I mean, understand this. At his death, his own family still didn't understand what his life was all about. He was all alone, rejected by everyone. Even his mother sat there going, I have no idea what's going on here other than my son is dying. But Jesus says, that will never be the case with you. I will always be with you. That's the promise that he gives to us. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these, this word. Thank you for the testimony of Stephen, the great message that he preached, the courage that he showed. Thank you for the way that you opened heaven for him. Thank you for the way that you, you make similar promises to us that you did f- uh, for Stephen. Thank you, Father, that, uh, that we can always look to our corner and see Jesus, that He's always there, and that He has a plan and a purpose for our lives, even if we don't. Because Abraham uh, was promised many things, but He never saw those things, but You carried them out. You were faithful. Help us not to be stiff necked, Father. Help us not to be so hard hearted and stiff necked. We could see the sin in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. Father, I pray the Spirit would speak to our hearts about what is going on, what is going right and what is going wrong, that we would be different people because we have gathered around your word and your spirit is working in our lives. Father, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.